2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Adrian Childs tells us how he learned to love drinking less, in his new book, The Good Drinker. Adrian Childs has been a presenter on BBC Radio 5 Live since the day it started in 1994. On BBC Television, he launched and presented Working Lunch, Matter of the Day 2, The One Show and The Apprentice You're Fired. He was also lead football presenter for ITV. He's written and presented several documentaries, including Drinkers Like Me, for the BBC. He has a weekly column in The Guardian and writes regularly for The Sun and The Tablet. His previous book, We Don't Know What We're Doing, concerned in addiction, football fans' obsession with their teams. And today we're going to be talking about Adrian's new book, which is The Good Drinker, How I Learned to Love Drinking Less. Adrian, welcome to Little Atoms.
1: Thank you very much for asking me.
2: So this book is a companion piece to that BBC documentary I mentioned, Drinkers Like Me. So tell us, first of all, how the documentary came about.
1: Well, it occurred to me that in terms of documentaries about alcohol, about alcohol addiction or excessive alcohol use, they were always kind of the same. I mean, they're profoundly disturbing stories about blue lights, um, about lives ruined, you know, alcoholic liver disease, people absolutely on the brink, which, you know, which is well worth covering. But it just struck me that there were enormous numbers of drinkers like me who drank. An awful lot and because we didn't resemble the stereotypes we saw in those kind of documentaries and saw around us on the streets sometimes frankly that we didn't have we didn't have a problem with drink we weren't problem drinkers and you know I just thought you know if I'm drinking every day I'm drinking an enormous amount I've drunk all my life then you know I dread a social occasion without drink then how can I possibly say I haven't, you know, I haven't got some dependency on alcohol? So I wanted to make a documentary that explored those themes.
2: So to what extent then is, is the idea, not an alcoholic, because that, that brings along all sorts of medicalization ideas as well, but a problem drinker, how
1: would you have defined that as different from your own consumption? Well... If I can just pull you up on something, the alcoholic and alcoholism, describe that sort of medicalization. Well, most medics wouldn't use those terms. You know, the idea of the alcoholic as a binary thing, which you either are or you aren't, and alcoholism as something that sounds like a disease which you either have or haven't got, that's not used by clinicians. It's used by the rest of us. And I think, there's a real problem with that because it implies you either have this thing called alcoholism or you don't, which is just not like that. I think most medics look, and I'm not a medic, so I stand to be corrected, but most I speak to just look at sort of how much you are drinking. And, you know, the way I see it, it's an addictive substance. You know, if you, you know, if you drink regularly, just a little bit, then you're a bit addicted. If you drink, you know, a lot, regularly, then you're a bit more addicted. And if you absolutely drink all day, every day, plainly, you're very addicted. It's not a binary thing. You anyone who drinks is on a kind of spectrum. And the further are you up to the you are to the top of the spectrum, drinking an awful lot, then the more likely you are to have real problems.
2: Doing your research for the documentary and the book, what did you find was the sort of situation? in the uk in terms of drinking because we all grow up in this country with a drinking culture we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute but counterintuitively in the book you talk about how you found that actually there's a lot more people that drink very little than there are that drink excessively
1: yes which you know i work a lot interviewing people and making you know trying to make intelligent points on the radio And most of the intelligent points I think I should make, I think of probably straight after the show, often months after I've done it. And it was the case with this kind of revelation to me after i would made the TV program where we talked in the program. We'd focused on the amount of drinkers like me, right, who do run into serious problems because we drink so much. And we carry on drinking because we don't think we've got a problem. We carry on at that level. But because we're not waking up in shop doorways, et cetera, nobody thinks we've got a problem, least of all us. And then suddenly we get very ill. There's a lot of people who are in that category. And it was only months after making the show, I realized I'd been looking at the the stats through the wrong end of the telescope. Is that if you look at all drinkers, that's everybody who, who takes a drink in the UK every adult or, you know, including teenagers or whatever, then and you you, you look at them and just disregard anyone who doesn't drink for religious reasons or whatever reasons who are are abstinent, then you look at how much they are drinking. If you ask a drinker like me, as was, how many of them are drinking within the 14-unit guideline, then the answer you will normally get is none of them. None of them are drinking within those 14 units. Nobody drinks that little. Right, you might get someone who says, oh, 5%, 10%. But you know, every figure I've seen has it at 70%. And even if you allow for a last margin of error, more than half of all drinkers are drinking within those 14-unit-a-week guidelines and are drinking safely. And once you see, it, I think it's really important to see it through that prism as a big drinker. Now, look, carry on drinking at that level if you want and take the risks right? But do not go around saying that everybody drinks more than 14 units. Everybody does. It's just simply not true. I mean, you can say the 14 units is ridiculous. You know, you don't, you know, you can drink much more than that without it being a problem. Don't say that either, because it's just not true. You know, and I think I think that's really important to bear in mind, because the power of social norming. it's a bit like during lockdown, if we felt everyone else was obeying the lockdown rules, then we were, you know, more keen to obey them ourselves. But if you looked out the window and saw people flouting the rules, then you're less inclined to go along with it. I think it's the same with drinking. You know, if, you, if you've if you convinced yourself that everybody's doing it, you feel you've got more of a green light to carry on doing it yourself. Where well, we just need to be mindful that most people aren't drinking like that. The big drinkers are the outliers. Not the ones who are drinking moderately,
2: so you mentioned fourteen units a couple of times, and mm-hmm. that's the, the the current guideline on mm-hmm. how much to drink both for for men and women in this country. It used to be slightly different for either yeah. now units are a thing that i mean I think it's one of those things that acts as a sort of barrier for people. Contemplating how much they're drinking because it looks more complicated than it actually is. Yeah. But at the same time, unlike you talk about this in the book, unlike other foodstuffs, there's no way to directly relate units to the thing you are consuming because it doesn't say you go to the pub, it doesn't say on the tap how many units are Mm -hmm. in this pint.
1: It does say on the tin, usually in very small writing, and it will probably say on the wine bottle, but no, there's not enough information on it. And also, you know, I, I've, I've speak to some really intelligent people, you know, in my work. We get onto this subject and they go, you know, these people can tell you how to split the atom. You know, they can tell you what the political situation is in Bhutan without looking it up. But then you ask them about a unit, go, oh, it's terribly confusing. I don't understand what a uni is. What is it again? I mean, it's not that complicated. You know, and also you can work it out very roughly. Half a pint of beer is a bit more than one unit. You know, one shot of alcohol, one standard shot of spirits is one unit. And you can figure it out from there. You know, we all know. It's a bit like we all know. Well, do we all know? We all know that when we tell the doctor how much we drink, we aren't telling the truth. So that implies we do know what the truth is. Although, you know, when I really did look what i was drinking i mean i realized i didn't know i mean it was just extraordinary what i was putting away
2: so i mentioned one of the things that i mean if you asked a somebody who didn't come from this country something about british people it wouldn't be long before they came to the idea that we drink it's a culture where most of us are brought up you know to expect to To go to the pub at some point. Tell us about your formative experiences then, when you were growing up. You growing up in the West Midlands. How was your introduction to alcohol?
1: Well, you know, I felt, but again, uh, you know, I felt as if this was true of everybody as I was growing up, which there were a lot of us. I, I think we were probably still the noisy minority, but there was a lot of us. But even at that early stage, I was thinking, well, everybody is desperate to get served in a pub. You know, everybody just wants to go and get smashed before school discos and and stuff like that. When In fact, I think that, you know, that probably wasn't quite right. But yes, you know, the pub, you know, as my dad said to me when I was 14 or 15, he said, difficult age for you now, son, because, you know, you're you're too young to stay at home all the time, but you're not old enough to go to the pub. You know, it's like drinking and going to the pub was the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow when you're 18. It's something to do. it's where you go, and I think it's probably partly an unintended consequence of the of the you know minimum drinking age laws that you know it's built up to such a big thing, which will be so great and when you get there, so you know I mean enough people have stopped me in the street said you know when when I described my teenage years, they'd say, You know you are exactly the same as me. we all knew the pubs which' got a name for themselves as you know would serve people under eighteen, wouldn't be too strict about it. And then we'd all flock there. You know, it was and before long, you know, it was just all about drinking. Where could I go and get a drink? You know, where, you know, and then you carry that until you into your twenties and so on. You know, just, you know, where am I going to drink tonight? We're going to a party. What we got, who's going to drive? Because, you know, the rest of us want to drink, you know, or shall we get a taxi there? It, it always seemed to be about drinking.
2: And the other key thing to say here is when you start work, you worked for the BBC early on yeah. and throughout your early careers in journalism, there is a very big drinking culture at and yeah. around work, isn't there?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, I came in, I think, in the last, you know, at, at the end of that era when newsrooms were basically sort of pubs with with a few computers in them. But, I mean, there was... There was a lot of drinking. There was, I mean, whatever business you're in, you will generally find, you know, a groups of people you can go out drinking with, and you know, the drinking will be part of your work culture, your bit of whatever business you're in. You know, but however, I mean, you know, drinking sort of on the premises or just off the premises at work. I mean, it was still, it was still pretty rife in the television newsroom. I mean, in the in the radio newsroom as well. The day I started there. You know, they, I was working on the six o'clock and 10 o'clock Radio 4 bulletins, which are a big deal, you know, in the six in the evening and 10 at night. And we'd just done the six o'clock one. And then, you know, these lovely old guys, brilliant journalists, brilliant writers and stuff, they said, Oh, we're we going to the pub. And I went, Oh, all right then. And I said, Well, I'm working on the 10, though. So I really shouldn't go to the pub. And they said, Oh, we're working on the 10 as well. You know, and they would <laughs> sit and have four pints in a round. And they got the job done. You know, it was a bit bit much for me even at the time. But then, you know, before long, I was working on a lunchtime business program. So finished at one. What do you do after? You go to the pub. Before you know, you're sort of drinking all
0: afternoon. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds.
2: Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Adrian Childs and we're talking about his book, The Good Drinker, How I Learned to Love Drinking Less. And Adrian, let's talk about then what was the, maybe not a actual moment, but at what point do you start to feel that you are drinking too much and you should do something about it?
1: Oh, look, there were several, I mean, there were several moments, I mean, sort of practically speaking, in terms of hard facts, if you like, there was the first day of filming of that documentary, where they filmed me on a Saturday, um, my team, West Brom, were at home to Liverpool, and it was a lunchtime kickoff. So in the pub beforehand, I mean, it was sort of morning, which, you know, 10, half 10, we met in the pub. Now, look, that, you know, that's unusual, but by no means unheard of. And I drank four pints of Guinness, which is on the high side for me ahead of a game. But again, by no means unheard of. Then we went to the game, didn't actually drink anything all afternoon. Went back, to got the train back down to London, went to a friend's 40th birthday. It was a warm day. So I had a couple of pints when I got there, you know, mandatory glass of Prosecco or whatever to toast the, uh, the, the birthday girl. Then drank, you know, plenty of wine, as you do with your meal. And then we went out after and we had a pint. I remember I, remember I had a pint of lager pushed into my hands. Then the following morning, the crew who I'd been with at the football the day before, the camera crew, came down my house and filmed me as I calculated what I'd drunk the day before. Now, look, this was a day which I didn't, look, absurd as it sounds, For somebody who's drunk four pints of Guinness before, you know, before midday on on a Saturday, I still hadn't considered it a big drinking day. I would never felt drunk. You know, it it was never mad. It was just, it was a long day, tiring, but it didn't feel like a big drinking day to me. But, you know, I totted it all up and it was something like 36 units that I'd drunk. So I I was getting on for three times, for three times the weekly the weekly guidance in one day on what didn't seem a big drinking day. And I thought, hang on, I really am drinking a lot. So that's one. I realized drinking a lot. Then there was the medical aspect. When you know, outwardly I had no medical or social problems with drinking. I didn't misbehave when I was drinking. I didn't get hangovers even. So, and also I just had a blood test, a routine blood test before, where they check for something which shows whether you're drinking or not. No, there was no problem with that. So I went to a liver scan for the program and, you know, I was horrified to see that my liver had sustained some damage to the amount I'm drinking. So that's a wake up call. So something's got to change there. And then there was also a kind of spiritual moment where I was talking to a friend of mine about drinking and she said, yeah, you know, there's no doubt for me, you know, when I'm not drinking the world, the world feels like a very beige place. And I I was sort of horrified by that, not, I thought it was a terrible thing to say, but I actually I knew what she meant. I realized I felt like that too. And I was outside at the time looking at looking at the park I was walking through. I thought, God, the trees are green, the sky's blue, you know, and this is God's green earth. And and I it feel without alcohol in it, if this feels, this beauty feels beige to me. You know, I need alcohol to see the world in its true colours in some sense. I just thought, this has got to stop. You know, I'm just not having that. Yeah, so I, you know, so that feels like a key moment to me as well. But, you know, there's lots of little moments, but I hope I've explained sort of, you know, three ways which, where, where it was coming from.
2: So the, the memoir elements of this book, as you've already said, they're not stories of blue flashing lights and, and terrible lows and drinking first thing in the morning. And the key message of the book is that it's perfectly reasonable, the perhaps surprising message of the book is that it's perfectly reasonable to have a moderate relationship with alcohol and still enjoy it, even if you believe, you know, in your mind that you do have a, you know, a a troublesome relationship with alcohol. And this is the message I I entirely agree with, because I do it myself. I, I also I'm a moderator, as you, as you call people like this, oh. in the book. But we have to talk about something you
1: talk about in the book. Yeah. Why not just quit? Yeah, that's a, a perfectly good question. A lot, and it may be that I end up doing so. But, but, you know, my life, you know, rightly or wrongly, well, wrongly, I wish it wasn't like that. But my life, you know, it's a big part of my life. It's pubs are where I can sort of unwind if i you know, I'm you know, I catch up with old friends, and I'm still, you know, my closest friends really are still the ones I was I grew up with. I was at primary school with in 1971. You know, so we go back a long way. It's just part of kind of what we do, and it would be a big thing to stop. Now, I could, you know, I'd do it if if there was no way I could get, you know, I could have reduced to what I was drinking with this enormous amount then. I would have had to stop completely, but I think I found, you know, I think I found another way just to moderate and bring it right down. But, you know, again, I'm, I'm slightly conflicted in a sense, life would be simpler if I did stop completely, because if you stop completely, you make one decision. I'm not drinking anymore. That's it. Everyone knows you've made it and there's no other decision to make really hard though. It is you've made your one decision. If you're moderating and i mean it sounds like you'll know what i mean by this you've you've got to give it you've constantly got to give it thought you know how much do I am, I am i gonna drink tonight right if so how much where when will i stop you know who and okay i'll drink tonight but hang on i'm meeting next tomorrow night in the pub which is what we always do i can't sort of not drink there and then wednesday night there's that big party you know, for work which i hate going to but I'll need to drink that. You know, you've, you've constantly got to work things out, and it's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. And then, I mean, you've asked me as a moderator, why don't I just stop? I and mean, which a perfectly reasonable question. But, you know, somebody asked me, a couple of people have interviewed me for this book, uh, Don't Drink At All. I mean, and one, one of them was a woman called Rima who presents The Breakfast Show on BBC Radio Leeds. And, you know, when I hear myself saying what I've just said to you, to her, I just think how... Bar me. This must this must sound to split in her case a Muslim who's never drunk. You know, and it does give me pause for thought. I say, what, what is this madness? But, you know, I'm instead of sort of fighting it, I'm sort of working with what I've got. And I think I've found a way to bring it down. And I think it's important to do so because for a lot of drinkers, this sort of rather deep-held belief that we have that if you drink a lot, the only true way of addressing it is to stop completely. Now that the prospect of doing so is so kind of awful to a lot of people that they never seek any help at all. So, you know, and, and that takes us to something, you know, that ends in a very bad place. So the
2: idea of, of being a moderator, you talk about the, the sort of position that has in the, in the pantheon of people that have A problematic relationship with alcohol so so how do people who are who have had problems with alcohol and are now sober and people that are like you know I've been sober for a year I've been sober for 20 years you know how do people like that that you encounter react when you say I have you know I I have been able to moderate
1: well, the ones I've spoken to, and there's a couple of people really helped with me in my book who you know, don't drink at all anymore, and actually would describe themselves as recovering alcoholic. They've been, you know, they've been incredibly supportive, and say, so, you know, I wish I'd sort of, you know, read, you know, I, wish, I mean, both. I wish i would kind of seen your documentary when I was a lot younger. I wish I'd sort of read this book when I was a younger. It might have made a difference. But then I speak to their families, and they say, no, that's not It would have made any difference anyway. Leaving that aside. And when people stop you in the street, people often come up to me and I mean, it's like moderation doesn't compute with people. Nobody ever comes up in the street and said, oh, how's your moderating going? They say, they go, uh, you're still on the wagon? I hear you've stopped drinking. You know, that's all I ever get asked. And sometimes in a pub I'll go, oh, I'll have a drink, and they'll go, I thought you'd stopped. So I have never once said I'd stopped. The documentary wasn't about that, and the book's not about that, but it seems to be the only way people can compute it. So somebody might come up to me in the street and say, oh, I understand you've stopped. You know, they might say, oh, you're a friend of Bill's, which is code for being in AA. And I go, no, no, I haven't stopped. I've just moderated. And then they, you know, they might give me a sad smile, tap me on the shoulder and say, oh, okay, okay, well, well done. And I don't know what they're thinking. They're thinking, nah, poor lad's still in the grip of it. You know, he's, he's kidding himself. Then so people who take that attitude, kind of, if you can convince them, that you have successfully moderated from drinking an awful lot, they will then just say or think, well, okay, you can't have had much of a problem in the first place then, can you? You know, that's annoying too. You know, so us moderators need a break. Now, some of us may be kidding ourselves. Perhaps some of us didn't have a bigger problem in the first place, but the majority, you know, it's a noble thing to do. It never gets the kudos, q- well, kudos is the wrong word, but it never gets the respect that sobriety does, giving up completely. You know, which is a great thing to have done, but you know, moderation has got no beginning, no end. You know, you can't celebrate the anniversary of moderation, but you know when it started really, and you definitely don't know when it finishes because it's always a it's always a work in progress.
2: You talk in the book to a number of other people who describe themselves as moderators, and they all have, and yourself obviously, all have different techniques for how you deal with that. So tell us
1: some of the ways in which people moderate? I mean, they, you know, there are many different ones and it's ever-changing. There's the mode that you know most therapists possibly correctly would be suspicious of where there's one bloke, a comedian I know, who, I mean, he, he, just, he just come hook or by crook, somehow manages to not drink for 100 days a year. And he literally he plans a non-drinking day he marks up a calendar, you know, he thinks about it all the time and so on. You know, that's just how he, that's how he does it. You know, if, you know someone else did a, an, he's an academic a bit older than me at Bath University, he's another West Brom supporter. And I mean, he's fascinating. His name's Bryn Jones. And he, I mean, he slightly, he, he's the most similar to me in that he sort of reframed the way he thought about it. He he made himself angry about the power of big alcohol companies, and he kind of channeled that. And he just, he just, he learned to drink a bit slower. He realized if he had a meal first, then he felt less. He felt less like a drink after. So he just worked out a practical strategies. Oh, that's just reframed in the sense, just worked out, which I, which has really helped me realizing that the first drink. That the first drink is only, you know, is the only one that matters. That's the one that gives you the change of state. And then every subsequent drink is a vain, fruitless attempt to try and recreate the emotional change of state that the first drink gave you. So you frame it like that, you sort of realize the pointlessness of going on to have your fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth drink. And just to finish
2: off, you're, you're in your 50s now mm-hmm. and, you know, looking back on a life that's been lived in this culture at this point where you've decided to deal with what you see as something that's problematic. Yeah. How does that change your view of the drinking culture that we have in this country, whether that's, you know, big alcohol or advertising or, you know, work culture or peer pressure or, or whatever?
1: Um, well, I'm, you know, I'm sort of full of regret and a bit embarrassed about just how much I've drunk down the years and how much stall offset by alcohol in a life pretty well-lived. But, you know, I wish it hadn't been so. And I just think the messaging, you know, needs reframing because at the... Which is sort of what I've blundered into sort of trying to do in the book is just, you know, we're trying to challenge the way we've always we've It's always happened, which is on one hand you've got drinks companies trying to sell as much product as possible, you know and on the other hand, the public health lobby says, "No, stop or drink absolutely next to nothing and you know and these are the harms you know n- neither of those approaches or certainly the latter have much are uh, much help in in getting to see drinkers like me you know, how things can be a bit different. And so sort of that's, that's what I've tried to do. You know, I think it has just got too much, too much of a grip on us. And, and I suppose in a way, what I've tried to do, instead of fighting that, I'm trying to sort of work with it, you know, and try and see how we live alongside alcohol, because it's not going away anywhere, but how we can really get the benefits from it and, and radically reducing the harms.
2: So I've been talking to Adrian Childs. We've been talking about his book, The Good Drinker, How I Learned to Love Drinking Less, which is out in the UK from Profile Books. Adrian, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me.
1: Not at all. Thanks uh, thanks very much for having me. And, and good luck with your moderating. We must, we must swap notes sometime.
2: This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented, and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do,